Today, friends, rather than a reading, you get a song. We are going to begin looking at Matthew's genealogy, and believe it or not, I have found two incredible musical renditions of Matthew's genealogy. And we're going to use one of them to introduce the passage that we're going to look at today, which is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. So go ahead and play that. Father Judah. 
Yes. Far better than trying to pronounce all those names. Friends, I've never been so excited to teach a passage of genealogy. I mean, seriously, in my study of these verses, it's been eye-opening, and I have to tell you something, I couldn't contain my excitement to only one week. We're actually going to take two weeks to look at this genealogy. Yes, we're going to take two weeks to look at the portion of Scripture that you gloss over in your reading through the Bible plan. Because there is so much in here as we start this new study on the Gospel of Matthew. But really, today I want to lay a foundation. I want to lay a foundation for the Gospel of Matthew, the idea of Gospel, and the reliability of the Gospel, so that we can build upon that as we study together. So before we actually jump into the genealogy itself, I want to make some comments both about my philosophy as we enter this new sermon series on Matthew, but also, again, about the nature of the Gospel itself and really the nature of the four Gospels and their relationship. So, friends, if you're a note-taker, get your pens ready. If you're not a note-taker, become a note-taker and get your pens ready. Because I promise you that in the course of this sermon, there's going to be something or some things you're going to want to remember later on. And some things that you may, in fact, be challenged by later that you're going to want to go, I think Adam said something about that. I wish I remembered what it was. Now, so first, as we begin our study, uh, I want to talk about my philosophy as we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when I sketched out going through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, I saw that this series is going to take us all the way through Easter of 2024. So now, uh, I've already blown the schedule because this was going to be one week and now it's two weeks, so I already threw that away. However, we are going to dive into the Gospel of Matthew, and friends, it is going to take us at least a year to go through, but let me tell you something, it could be much, much longer. But I'm going to try to balance not getting bogged down in Matthew with treating the text that we have in front of us. So my intention in this series is to give you a hearty, nourishing, true serving from Matthew's Gospel each and every week. However, you need to understand, I am not going to try to pick all the bones clean. Because otherwise, I promise you, we would be in the Gospel of Matthew for many, many, many years. So there are going to be a lot of sections that we may study through, and you're going to leave here wanting more. But I promise you that that means there's plenty of meat left on the bones for you to find in your own personal study, and for us to explore in future studies of Matthew's Gospel. So my intention in this series, friends, is to give you a good and a true taste of Matthew, and I want to help you develop a taste for Matthew's Gospel so that you'll go back and study it during your own times of study. I want want to leave you wanting more and knowing that there is more if you'll go back and put in the time to study this Gospel yourself. So that's going to be my philosophy as we start this new series going through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're left wanting more when you walk out of here, know that's on purpose. And know it's also an invitation to go back and to study more yourself. Secondly, before we dive into this genealogy, I want to understand, I want you to understand the concept of Gospel itself. And here's where you might want to start taking some notes. 
Now, friends, all four of the Gospels, which are the first four books that we have in our New Testament, all four Gospels are technically anonymous. They're technically anonymous. None of the four Gospels have the name of the author in the original manuscript. Now, from the earliest teachers and traditions of the church, they're unanimous in attributing the gospel that we're about to study to Matthew, who is also known as Levi, and who was one of Jesus' twelve disciples, a former tax collector. The testimony of the Greek bishop Irenaeus in A.D. 175, along with other evidences, put the composition of Matthew's gospel about A.D. 50, late A.D. 50, early A.D. 60. Now, why am I mentioning dates to you? Is there going to be a test? Friends, I'm not going to give you a test, but I promise you sometime you may be tested, your faith may be tested, and I'm giving you these dates to help bolster your faith and the accuracy of what it is that we study today. So again, Matthew's Gospel was written in late A.D. 50, early A.D. 60. Jesus died and rose again in A.D. 33. What does that mean? It means that Matthew's gospel was composed 25 to 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, that's important because 25 years is not that long ago. I mean, again, do you remember what you were doing 25 years ago? I mean, I don't remember because I'm only 29. But some of you probably remember what you were doing 25 years ago. The point is, Matthew's Gospel was written and it started circulating in the lifetime of many of those who were eyewitnesses to the very events that Matthew's Gospel records. And that lends to the credibility of the account that we're going to study. It lends to the truthfulness of what we are going to read. Now, some scholars, some critical scholars today, will challenge Matthew's authorship on the basis that Matthew borrowed a lot from our friend Mark and his gospel. Now, most scholars believe that Mark's gospel was written first, and both Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel as one of the primary sources when they wrote their own gospel. In fact, friends, understand this. 90% of Mark's gospel is in Matthew's gospel. Some of it is even word for word. Similarly, 50% of the material in in Matthew's Mark's Gospel is repeated in Luke's Gospel. As such, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospel. Synoptic, sin means together, optic means seen. They are Gospels that can be seen together because you can take the Gospels And you can put them in parallel columns next to each other, and you can see their similarities. In many places, they actually, the first three Gospels, go in a similar order. And so they are the synoptic Gospels. And we have things like this called a harmony of the Gospel that puts them in columns next to each other so that you can compare them and see their similarities and their differences. And friends, when you do that, what you see is that there was clearly heavy borrowing between the gospel writers. But yet at the same time, we find variation 
And we find unique material in each and every one of the four Gospels, which we're going to talk about briefly in a moment. However, Mark was the shortest of the Gospels, and it appears that both Matthew and Luke took from and then expanded upon the material that we have in Mark's much shorter account. Now, that's all well and good, but it leaves us with a question and a challenge as we study Mark's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel. We remember Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. Matthew heard for himself Jesus' teaching. But John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he was not. He wasn't one of the twelve. So why would one of the authoritative twelve disciples, Matthew, rely so heavily on the account of John Mark, who was not one of the original twelve disciples. Now, I bring this question up because critical scholars will argue that if Matthew the disciple actually wrote this gospel, why didn't Matthew write his gospel and go, hey, excuse me, move aside, little John Mark. I'm one of the authoritative twelve. Let me tell you how it really happened. Why would he defer to someone who is not one of the original twelve. And as such, many critical scholars will actually say, well, the gospel that we're about to study, that couldn't have been written by Matthew the disciple. I mean, obviously, if it was written by Matthew the disciple, he wouldn't have deferred so much to a non-disciple. I mean, so it must have been written by somebody in Matthew's name later on who wasn't really there, so he had to refer to what John Mark wrote down. Now, friends, again, this is not a seminary class. I'm bringing up this technical question because, not because I'm going to give you a test. I'm bringing up this question because one day your faith is going to be tested by a critic, by an article, by a TikTok, by a YouTube. You're going to hear these claims voiced and you're going to start to go, oh, maybe the gospel is not reliable. Maybe Matthew didn't write it. And I want you to know and have confidence in the truth and the truthfulness of what we are about to study together. Friends, there is a solid explanation why Matthew, one of the twelve, would so readily defer to the account of Mark, who is not one of the twelve. Widespread evidence says, well, who was John Mark? Who was this John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Evidence from the early church fathers and their testimony says the Apostle Peter, as he traveled, as he preached, As he taught, he had a scribe who traveled with him. And that scribe wrote down Peter's teachings, wrote down Peter's sermons, wrote down Peter's remembrances. And eventually, he took all of them and he put them together. And the name of that scribe is John Mark. John Mark was the scribe to the apostle Peter. Now, remember Peter, friends. Peter held a position of prominence during the ministry of Jesus and a position of leadership and prominence in the early church. So if the Gospel of Mark is a collection of Peter's teaching and remembrances, and Peter stood foremost amongst the disciples, of course Matthew would defer to Peter's account when he wanted to write his own account. And then Matthew would simply add to his remembrances. He'd add to what Peter had already written down and recorded. And the result is what we are studying today, which is the gospel according to Matthew. 
Hey, friends, we've already started down the rabbit hole, so I want to go a little bit further and see how far it goes. Are you still with me? Okay. Now, we should consider the relationship between the four gospel accounts that we have. Why do we have four accounts at all? Wouldn't it be better if we just had one authoritative gospel account? And friends, I believe the answer is no. The answer is no. Because just as it's good that we today have many news sources covering the news stories of our day, it's good that we have multiple accounts of the news about the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. Today, our multiple news sources all report on the same news stories, but each one of them kind of looks at it from a different angle, a different perspective. Each news source interviews different witnesses who saw the same event from different angles. Each consults with experts who have different interests and specialties. Each is writing, each is sending their news to a different audience, and they know their audience has different interests. Therefore, they are interested to highlight different things that their audience would be interested in. So each news source highlights and emphasizes different things about a story according to their perspectives and according to their audience. And so we today, friends, can take and look at multiple news stories about the same event and we can get a fuller picture of what really happened in a news event than if we only had one source reporting on it. And the comparison when we look at different news sources today can tell us the assumptions and the priorities and the biases of each news outlet and reporter. And friends, this also applies to the multiple gospel accounts that we have. We we can see the differences. We can note the variations in reporting. We're hearing different eyewitness perspectives on the same event. And we're considering the unique material that each one includes. And that gives us a fuller, friends, a fuller picture of the story of Jesus than if we only possessed one account. And it allows us also to compare the accounts and we get to see some of the underlying assumptions and priorities of each gospel writer and the audience to which the writers wrote. Now, here's just an interesting example. Jacob and I, we meet regularly and we're meeting this week and we're talking about this example of differences in the gospel. Just before his crucifixion, when the officials came to arrest Jesus, All four of our Gospels record that one of the disciples reacted to that arrest by pulling out a sword and cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Friends, all four Gospels report on the same event. But know what? Only one of those Gospels add another detail and tell us that Jesus then healed the ear of that servant. And you know which Gospel that was? It was Luke. Luke, friends, was a physician. He was a doctor. He was very interested in medical things and healing. And in fact, not only that, but Luke is so specific, he's also the only one of the four Gospels that tells us not only did Jesus heal it, but it was the right ear that was cut off. Now, why didn't the other Gospels report on the healing? Well, because it wasn't important to them to tell the narrative that they were trying to tell. Now, this was an important detail to Luke because of who he was. 
But we get a fuller picture then of this story because of it. In the same way, while all four Gospels tell us it was a disciple who cut off the ear, only John's Gospel names names. It was Peter! Peter did it! Now, friends, first of all, that's an eyewitness detail because you remember, John was one of the twelve disciples. He was there, and more than that, when we read the Gospel of John and the book of Acts, John was a very, very close associate of Peter, and he ministered alongside Peter, and clearly they had a relationship, and John, because of that relationship, clearly didn't mind embarrassing Peter and naming names, and so we know that it was Peter who cut off the ear. So, friends, when we compare gospel accounts, it brings to the fore some of the underlying assumptions and priorities and even the personalities of the gospel writers and the audience to which they wrote. And it gives us a fuller picture of the events that we read about. And this also helps explain the differences that we find in the four gospel accounts. Now, friends, some people, and you're going to hear people say this if you haven't already, some people say there are contradictions between the four gospel accounts. For example, after his death, All four Gospels tell us without question, friends, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened three days later on the first day of the week. All four Gospels agree on that. However, if you read all four Gospel accounts of the resurrection, it can be kind of confusing to determine the exact order of events. Who found the empty tomb first? How many angels were there at the tomb? Who ran and told the disciples? Which disciples then ran to see the empty tomb? Who first spoke to the risen Jesus and when? And at first blush, you might read all the accounts, try to answer those questions and go, Oh, that looks like there's some contradictory answers. And you might say, if these are reliable reports, why can't they all just get their story straight? But friends, when we find variations in the gospel, you need to understand something. They are not giving contradictory answers, but complementary answers. They're not contradictory, they're complementary. We're getting a fuller picture of what happened than if we only had one account. So with the resurrection account, just as the account of the servant's ear, each author reported what he deemed to be most important in the story, leaving out other details that some included. And each one brought to the fore what they thought was most important for their audience to hear. In fact, friends, if all four gospel writers actually agreed word for word, then we should be a little bit suspicious that they might have gotten together and fabricated a story and tried to sell it to us. It's absolutely fascinating. There's a man by the name of J. Warner Wallace. And he's a retired cold case police detective with over 25 years of experience investigating cold cases. And he came to believe in Jesus Christ when as a cold case detective, he went to examine the evidence presented by the four Gospels. And he writes about it in his book, Cold Case Christianity. For Wallace, the fact that there's four accounts and there seem to be Apparent disagreements, not necessarily contradictory, but some complementary things with some, some details that you have to work out. 
This is what he writes about it. He says, reliable eyewitnesses never agree. In all the cases I've ever worked, from simple theft and assault cases to robbery and homicides, I have yet a case where the witnesses of the event agreed on every single detail. That's never happened. There are many factors that contribute to one's perception of an event. Physical location, past experience, familiarity with the feature of a crime scene, a witness's physical, emotional, and psychological distinctives all play a role in what they see and how they communicate the testimony after the fact. In fact, when I see three different witnesses tell the exact same thing, I start to get suspicious. Friends, the four gospel accounts show us four different and reliable perspective. The variations actually don't detract from, but they add to the credibility that these are eyewitness accounts. And anything that at first blush appears to be contradiction can actually be explained as complementary. Simply another perspective, a detail included that wasn't included by others. And as such, with four different accounts, friends, we get a fuller picture of the events of Jesus, whether it's the cutting off of the servant's ear or whether it's the resurrection of Christ, we get a fuller picture of the, of the story of Jesus Christ because we have four accounts to look at. And so it is worthwhile for us to compare gospel accounts because it brings to the front the priorities, the assumptions, the personalities of each gospel writer and the audience to which they wrote. For example, we're about to study Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to find in Matthew's Gospel, even beginning here with this genealogy, that Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. Now, whereas in comparison, we find that our friend Luke was writing to a Gentile audience. Well, how do we know that? Because Matthew highlights things in the Gospel that would have been important to the Jewish people, And Luke ignores things that Matthew mentions because they wouldn't have made any difference to his Gentile audience. It wouldn't have been important to them. They wouldn't have cared about it. For example, we're going to see that Matthew, he takes some amazing pains to show us that the story of Jesus fits into the bigger story of Abraham and the people of Israel. Because that would have been important to the Jewish people to see how Jesus fits into their story. Matthew is going to repeatedly show us, friends, how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Uh, He fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah. He's going to bring the promised kingdom of David and the kingdom of God to earth. Matthew wants to show his fellow Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's going to fulfill the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 to bring blessing to all the nations. So Matthew's gospel is distinctly Jewish, and it emphasizes things that would have been important to the Jewish people, including the opening genealogy, which we finally get to now. Are you still with me? All right, I've lost a few of you. I promise not every sermon, not every sermon in this series is going to be so technical. I promise you. Friends, I felt like we needed to talk about these things today to lay a firm foundation that we can build upon and to help you because you're seeing it too. I'm seeing it. You're seeing it. We're seeing, especially on social media, increasing numbers of attacks on the Bible. 
and on its veracity, on its reliability, on its truthfulness. And friends, I want you to know that we stand on a firm foundation when we stand on the Word of God. These are ancient words. They are ever true and they are ever reliable. You do not need to check your brain at the door in order to believe. Your faith rests on solid evidence. Amen? And I want you to understand that. So just a few minutes, just give me a few more minutes to start looking at the Gospel, and we're going to continue this next week. Just a few minutes, turn your attention to Matthew's Gospel and answer the question, did Matthew blow it? I mean, seriously, can you think of a more boring way to start a story? You know, every writing and public speaking class that you ever see, that you ever participate in, says, make sure in your first few statements you draw the hearer or the reader in. But Matthew's like, nope, welcome to my story. Here's a list of 42 names. Friends, could it be? Could it be that these 17 opening verses of Matthew's Gospel are actually far more dramatic than we might think. What if to the original Jewish hearers of these 17 verses, it made their hearts race in anticipation for what was coming? Now first, let's note that the genealogy lets us know the type of the literature that Matthew is writing. Friends, genealogy indicates this is not legend, this is not philosophy, this is not speculation, this is history. Matthew is recording for us good news, not just good advice. Friends, Matthew's recording good news about what has happened in history, not just good advice about how you should live or what you should do. This is history. This is good news, indicated by the fact that we start with a genealogy. And then Matthew starts us off in verse 1. Now you can put it up, Samuel. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that first phrase, the book of genealogy in Greek is Biblios Geneseos. Biblios Geneseos. Biblios is book, and it's where we get our word Bible. Biblios, Bible, book. Geneseos is, means beginning or origins or genealogy. But to the original Greek readers, friends, the original Greek readers would have seen that word, Geneseos, and they would have said, oh my gosh, that's the Greek name of the first book of the Bible. Genesis. Genesis. Matthew's purposefully implying two things. Number one, God's doing a new thing. Just as he created in Genesis, he's about to create something new. Something new's coming, and it's going to be spectacular. But the second thing he's doing here is he's tying the story of Jesus into the story of Genesis. He's saying, hey, from the beginning, God's been doing something. From the beginning, God has been on the move. He's been unfolding human history from the very book of Genesis. And guess what? It's coming to a climax now. Pay attention. Because what started in Genesis is coming to a climax And then we see in the genealogy, Matthew intentionally mentions two men, Abraham and David. 
Father Abraham is the one who received the promises from God of descendants as numerous as the sky, the promise of a land in which to live, and the promise that through him would come blessing to all the nations of the world. He is the father of the Jewish people. And then King David, he received the promise of a descendant, an anointed one in Hebrew, a Mashiach, or in, we've transliterated to Messiah, who would sit on David's throne and whose kingdom would never end. So Matthew ties Jesus into Genesis. He ties Jesus into the story of Abraham, the story of David. And he goes, guess what? All of God's promises are coming true. Everything he promised to Abraham, it's coming true. Everything he promised to David, it's coming true. Jesus is the heir to the promises to Abraham. He's the heir to the promises to David. And so from the very first verse, Jesus declares to his readers, Matthew here, declares to his readers, friends, this is not just another story, and this is not just any story. This is the story. This is the story. This is the story of what God has been doing since the beginning of the world. This is the story of what God has been doing through His people, through Abraham. This is the story of what God has been doing through King David. This story is reaching its climax. Pay attention. And friends, it's actually further indicated by the fact that Matthew began with the genealogy. Now to us today, we hit the genealogy at the beginning and we go, good, a section I can skim over and that can get to the good stuff. But fascinatingly, mind-blowingly, when you look in the Old Testament, God often proceeds a big work with a genealogy. Back in Genesis chapter 11, we get a genealogy for a man named Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and sets the course of everything he's about to do. In Exodus chapter 6, we see Aaron and Moses and God says, go save my people. And then Exodus chapter 6 presses pause and goes, here's a genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And then chapter 6 resumes and Aaron and Moses went and confronted Pharaoh and led the people of Israel to salvation. Friends, strangely, we often find genealogies as precursors to God about to do something big. Moreover, the Jewish scriptures put the books of the Bible in a slightly different order than we do. The, the, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the first part of our Bible, they put their order of books so that they end with the book of Chronicles. Friends, have you ever read the books of First and Second Chronicles? They are painful. They're, they're like all genealogy. And for us today, we skim Chronicles when we get there and we go, yes, a little extra time today. Because I'm not going to read every one of these names. Can't pronounce any of them anyway. But friends, Chronicles was an important book for the Jewish people. The last book of the Hebrew Scriptures was set there because at the end of the Babylonian exile, which we learned about when we studied Daniel last year, the Jewish people returned and they needed to reestablish who they were. They needed to remember who their ancestors were so that they could know who they were. And so the last word of the Old Testament, friends, is genealogy. And the first word of the New Testament is genealogy. Matthew says, do you want to know who you are? Do you really want to understand who you are? 
God is reestablishing His people. He's going to show them exactly who they are. He's going to bring all the spiritual exiles home. He's going to give them a new identity in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of Matthew is going to unfold that story. And finally, friends, we obviously don't have time to get into the names of the genealogy. We'll do that next week. But there's one more Easter egg I want us to look at because I think this is the coolest one of all of them. Okay, Matthew's genealogy. Briefly, it's selective, not exhaustive. It's selective, not exhaustive. Matthew was not trying to give us every name in every generation from Abraham to Jesus. Any scholar will look at this and immediately tell you there are some big omissions in this genealogy. Matthew's been selective to make a point. And the point is in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, so we've got three major movements in Israel's history. Abraham to David, David to the exile, the exile to Christ. But why does Matthew choose 14 names? 14 generations for each epoch of time. Friends, because 14 is 7 times 2. It's 7 times 2. When you read the Bible, always notice the number 7. Seven is a significant number in the Scriptures. God created the world in seven days. As such, the fourth of the Ten Commandments tells us in Exodus 20, the seventh day is a Sabbath rest. Then according to Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 15, every seven years was to be a Sabbath year, a year of release and rest, giving master, servant, animal, and land rest. And there was to be released from debts and those who'd fallen into debt slavery. So every seven days, rest. Every seven years, rest. But then came the big one. Every seven sevens. Every 49 years. Every seven sets of seven years. The 49th year, the 50th year, was the year of Jubilee. And Leviticus 25 explains it. It's 25.10. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants, It shall be a jubilee for you. And then each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. Friends, after seven sevens, people who had sold or lost their ancestral property because of debt could return to their land. Those who had no land, thus no means of independently supporting themselves, were returned to their family's land. All debts were canceled. Liberty for debt slaves was declared. The land, the animals, the people, they rested. It was like the world was being set to right again. So why were there three sets of 14 generations in Matthew's genealogy? Because that's three sets of seven, 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 seven. Six sevens. And I believe Matthew's genealogy declares with the coming of Christ begins the seventh seven. This is the year of Jubilee. This is the year, this is the time that the debt of sin is going to be canceled. This is the time that the spiritual slaves are going to be set free. This is the time the spiritual exiles are going to be brought home. All by faith, you can now enter into the rest of God. And so it is that we're going to hear Jesus himself teach us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And friends, that invitation is still good today. We are invited to enter into the year of Jubilee, the freedom and the rest of Jesus Christ. Sins canceled, slaves set free, exiles given a people and a place. Friends, if you never have, Today is the day. Let your striving end. Let your sin be gone. Let your life be made new. By faith, enter into the rest that Jesus Christ offers. So, friends, you can see this genealogy. It's telling us far more than we might see when we first look at it. And, friends, wait until you see who's included. Who's included in the names in this genealogy, which we'll look at next week. But friends, for this week, understand that this genealogy indicates that the story, friends, the story we are about to study is not just a story. It's not just any story. This is the story. It's not just legend. It's not just philosophy. This is history. This truly happens. This is not just good advice, but good news for you and for me. And this is a story that is meant to change your story. It's a story that is meant to change your story. And by faith, you are invited to become part of Jesus' genealogy, His family, His story becoming yours. This genealogy tells us, friends, that big things are coming. And the question for us is, how might our study through the Gospel of Matthew, how might the study of His story Transform our story. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for so unexpectedly rich a passage. And thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, in whom is freedom, in whom is liberty, in whom is new life, in whom is jubilee. Father, help us to live the freedom and the life that Christ has come to offer us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and join us.